Huh, an error occurred. Wait a moment and then try again. All right, I'm going to give myself. That's the first time that's ever happened in the history of the show. Okay. Uh, that's, not, that's not bad. Okay, 31 devices. Let's go ahead and prioritize this for two hours. Hmm, interesting. Okay, let's try this again. Click and go live again. Happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 227 for August 11th, 2021. My name is Dr. Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located on the beautiful University of Montana campus, right here in fabulous Missoula, Montana. And as always, I appreciate the opportunity each week to talk to my co-host, Good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight? I am good and relieved that uh, StreamYard worked. That was the first time we've ever gotten a, you know, an error. Try again. So, and Peggy George is there. So I'm here in Oklahoma City where I apologize. I'm sure there's just thousands of people that are just bummed, but I did not publish the show on our website from last week. So we'll get both tonight and last week published, but I am the... Technology Integration and Innovation Specialist at the Cassidy School, um, although I've got my K-State on tonight, my Academy logo, so we're showing all kinds of colors. Uh, we are back at school. Um, I'm teaching fifth and sixth grade media literacy again this year and a sixth grade advisor and being an instructional coach, uh, actually leading a little workshop for all of our middle school and high school faculty tomorrow on our book study, which I am excited about. And kids return on Wednesday and it's going to be exciting to see what kinds of pivots and changes, because I think we sort of anticipated a whole sort of different set of circumstances through June and July. And, and now August is here and there's going to be more pivoting. So sadly the pandemic is not over, but anyway, it's uh, going to be great to be, to be back. And we were fortunate last year to be able to be in person the whole year. Um, I think there's about a thousand students over the course and, and faculty staff over the course of the whole year that got quarantined for some amount of time and sometimes repeatedly. But anyway, yeah, here we are back to uh, back, back, back in the saddle and excited um, as always to be here tonight. So what uh, what's shaking in Montana? Give us some like Montana gossip before we start into the show. Does <laughs> uh, a bear crap in the woods? That's about all I can talk about here. Well, um, I would say the smoke has been uh, much diminished this week. Uh, I know there are still a lot of active wildfires around, but we had, a, we had some rain um, uh, over the weekend uh, that I think helped clear some air, literally clear air here. And so it's it's been much nicer to be outside. In fact, um, on a more of a personal note, um, I think I mentioned earlier this year that I had a hip replacement in June and um, I'm getting back to my lunchtime walking routine and my evening walking routine. And that's just been a real joy and a blessing um, as I like to be outside and listen to my podcast and, and, and scoot around the University of Montana campus and my neighborhood. So uh, Montana has been pretty grand. And um, I will say it's still very hot here. Um, I am concerned about the future climate of Montana, uh, in part because, you know, Missoula, I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we had the longest string of 
90 plus 90 degree plus days uh, in the history of taking records in this region. And that will definitely have an impact on Western Montana's lifestyle tends to be uh, a little more moderate in temperature than other parts of the state. Um, Our winters aren't as cold and our summers aren't as hot. And that, that, that can be a real um, uh, nice place to be in uh, from a weather standpoint, but we'll just have to see how that plays out in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, uh, (laughs) I think this is the first year we've never had to water our grass all summer. Oh, wow. Which is, and it's still green. So like it, it could be better, but, um, Never, never had a summer that wet. So it's been, it's been hot. And, uh, our, we have this thing called smart hours with our local, you know, electric company. And like, I think it's normally 10, 12, 15 cents, something like that. But like yesterday, today and tomorrow, it's like over 40 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, and so they warn you and all this. So anyway, it's a little warm, but hey, I'm not, not going to complain. It's been a pretty mild summer. And I think we're having a front that's going to come in maybe over the weekend. But hey, we are not going to talk weather as much as I'd love to all show. <laughs> and we've got Mel out, out there along with Peggy. So awesome to have folks here in the chat. What are we going to do tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, we have constructed a set of links from kind of national and international technology news headlines. And we'll see if we can kind of shoot them through a little education prism uh, during our discussion tonight to see if we can't provide some insight and and uh, commentary on this as it relates to, to schools and education. And tonight our topics are Google, Microsoft, Apple, which are kind of our weekly topics for us. Uh, the tech correction, which is our discussion about kind of the evolving nature of technology and how it might be changing in due part because of the kind of extraordinary impact technology has had on our culture. Uh, some security articles. Uh, one I'll add tonight about a little bit of consumer savvy, which is something that I knew about, but it was really well articulated by a New York Times article. Um, some deep fake and digital ethic articles, a connectivity article, and then we'll end with our traditional geeks of the week. Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start us off tonight? Well, I'm going to just do a shout out to Mel, who's coming to us from Cali, Cali, Colombia. That is super awesome. Wow. So saw that on Twitter. And then Peggy says there's a lot of storms in the Phoenix area. I hope it's cooled off. It was like 109 without heat index or something. Just maybe it was even hotter. Just crazy. So, oh, why don't we um, why don't we start with. Uh, some Chrome news. So I know you've sure. got a couple. Um, I dropped in a Chrome unboxed article. Uh, Cursive, a handwritten notes app, is a Google Chromebook exclusive competitor to OneNote. Now, I am more interested in this kind of thing than in previous years because I and all of our middle school teachers um, are the, the proud users of a brand new Dell. I think it's a 3120 uh, student Chromebook and it, uh, it has a pretty decent touchscreen and the stylus on it. I have played with it and, and used it. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. Uh, in fact, I'm excited that I can still do sketch noting because I didn't know if I'd be able to do that last year with sixth graders. We had iPads and anyway, it's, it's exciting. So this is shipping exclusively with an HP Chromebook and it, I, it's a, it's a PWA, a pro- progressive web app. But like, anyway, they can't get the address. You'd think if it's a web address, we could be trying it on whatever device we, we want. But the article, um, says that it's kind of interesting for Google to launch a standalone app like this, but it's really to leverage the excellent handwriting recognition that, you know, Android and, uh, and Chrome OS already have built into them. And it's, but it's not integrated as part of Google Keep. 
Uh, I have tried, you know, various task managers, note apps and whatever. I really just put notes into my iPhone now and through iCloud, I have it synced up. So I, um, anyway, I, I may play with this a little bit, but is this, uh, exciting to you, Dr. Neifer? And where are you with your note taking apps these days? I'm not really a note taking app guy. In fact, if anything, that's one thing that, um, you know, we'll probably need a pry for my cold, uh, uh, dead technologyless hands. Uh, is is I still a vast, uh, vastly prefer um, the physical notebook uh, for note taking. And I think I've mentioned this a couple of times in the past. In fact, I'm looking for um, uh, in all mines in my work. It's the mole, the mole, the moleskin. Uh... Uh, yeah, moleskin style. The, my my favorite, uh, my favorite notebook is is actually the. Um, uh, the field note style notebook, uh, three by five by five by five by five. And I have a series of, of, you know, beautiful leather covers that I use with it, but my house is littered with notebooks. This is a project notebook. I have in a leather cover. This is, a um, a composition notebook cover. I have beautiful leather cover I have for this. And I, I like taking notes. I like doodling, um, in that space, but you mentioned sketch noting Wes, and I think that's an extraordinary, uh, classroom, uh, uh, both lesson and I think a way that you can teach some technology integration in an otherwise content classroom. And unfortunately, I never really had the opportunity to teach in a one-to-one environment. I was close my last year of teaching because I had a social studies class or two social studies classes assigned to a computer lab, which was pretty cutting edge stuff for, for 2009 um, when, when that happened. So I never had the opportunity in a K-12 environment um, to to teach uh, social studies. But almost certainly, if I had one-to-one Chromebooks or one-to-one iPads or one-to-one anything that had drawing component to it, um, that, uh, this would be of, of extraordinary interest to me. And, you know, I, I will say, and I'll mention this, uh, uh, uh well, actually I'll wait till the, the next article to mention this. Again. Peggy's saying, um, that she's just wondering what that market might be since one note is established. And, and I'd say since it's going to be, since it's native to Google and the Google uh, architecture, you know, every, everybody who's a Chrome user, like, I don't know how many schools are doing Microsoft 365 and, you know, Google, um, we do because we use Minecraft education and like our debate team, you know, has to, has to use Microsoft and, 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 and we've got, you know, faculty and staff users, uh, a more limited number actually this, these days that are, are doing that. Most, most folks are just in the Google universe. So I think this will be of really high interest to, uh, educators and students that are in the Chrome and Google, um, environment. And I've played with OneNote a little bit. I've seen some really impressive uses of OneNote. We toured, actually, it's been a a year and a half, I guess. It was February before the pandemic. Uh, We sent a team from our middle school to the Dallas and Fort Worth area to to four different schools to see kind of what they were doing with one-to-one. And the school that we toured that was using the Microsoft Surface, um, there was a high school math teacher that I saw that just did everything with OneNote. But it was super impressive and the ways that he could, you know, have a document and, you know, Google Classroom style, be able to have everybody having that, you know, template and seeing their work and it turning in. Um, anyway, it was pretty, pretty advanced, but I uh, don't I, I don't know what those numbers are, but I'm going to guess that there is a small number of schools out there that are doing that are K-12, their universities are different ballgame, but they do both Microsoft 365 accounts and Google accounts for right. students. So it'll, it'll and I'd make 
I'd make another quick note about OneNote that uh, if you are if you are in Chrome world, the web-based OneNote is just not nearly as functional as the apps, and that's both the Android app, the iOS app, and then also what's available on, on Microsoft Windows. And I would also say too that I've also seen some incredibly impressive uses of OneNote. I do wonder what the long term of OneNote is, uh, in part because I think that a lot of the things that I think Microsoft was relying on OneNote for is getting integrated into Teams. And that it's, it's always been kind of a problem, I think. And this is true of really all three of the, the, the major platform, uh, 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 folks here, whether you're talking about Chrome OS or, or Microsoft or Apple. But the bottom line is, is that uh, OneNote uh, seems to be less the 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 tech du jour than than Teams is, and in fact, a lot of the functionality that existed in OneNote uh, that was kind of classroom based seems to be getting sucked into Teams. And so, um, you know, Teams doesn't have from 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 I'm able to tell. And again, I only spend maybe a couple hours a week uh, in Teams as, as part of of of, of some of my uh, outside day job work, outside of my day job work. But it seems to be less ink driven than I think uh, OneNote. Is. And I think that was the power of OneNote is that this notion of digital inking. All right. You want to continue on with some Google articles? Sure. A uh, quick uh, note here. Um, this is a Chrome OS 92 stable has arrived uh, and it's, it's being deployed out. In fact, I received it last week um, on my, my, my Chrome desktop at work. Um, a couple of quick notes here. Um, Google Meet uh, is, is – the the article, and this is from About Chromebooks, Kevin Toffel's uh, uh, Chromebook blog, um, The it's now pre-installed Google Meets, and so that's something that uh, if you weren't already uh, uh, seeing a progressive web app uh, or hadn't installed a progressive web app, Meet now appears when you first log into a Chromebook for the first time, which is, is pretty interesting. Um, there is a an emoji keyboard, which is of particular interest to me, especially in light of last week when we talked about how I sometimes create a progressive web app out of an emoji dictionary so that I can use those as part of my day job. Um, and there's also some kind of more subtle things. But the reason why I mention this is because, um, you know, I, I've been kind of Mac guy for the last uh, six, eight months. And I've had an opportunity because my my work desktop is a, is a Chrome box uh, to be mostly on Chrome the last week and a half as I have uh, returned uh, to my office at the University of Montana. And I have to say, uh, Chrome continues to be a fast evolving operating system. And as an example of that, uh, one of the things I used to have to do was find a third party plugin for things like uh, taking and editing screenshots. And as it turns out, uh, the last two versions of Chrome, that's now all baked in. And so I don't need a third party app to do that anymore. So I would once again advocate, uh, you know, that the Chrome op the Chrome operating system can very much be a, a power user operating system if you need it to be. And then there's another really interesting article from Chrome Unboxed that uh, uh, I think might be of some use to uh, uh, tech directors if you haven't if you haven't had to go through this yet. But uh, basically, it talks about what happens when uh, the end of life comes to a Chrome device, and uh, Chrome devices now are guaranteed. I think it's seven years now, maybe it's eight, that new Chrome devices are uh, guaranteed to receive updates, but. Uh, one thing that's very interesting is that these, well, they don't stop working, right? They don't get updates. 
that can be problematic from a security uh, standpoint. But um, the bottom line is that uh, the, the device itself will continue to function. And as an example of that, I own, uh, they're both kind of vintage now, but a 2013 Chromebook Pixel and a 2015 Chromebook Pixel. Those were uh, 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 kind of high-end devices intended to be kind of uh, uh, models for other manufacturers to take on Chrome operating system. Um, those are, are not supported anymore. The 2015 model uh, stopped receiving support earlier this year, and they're both still functional. I've repurposed one of them. The 2013, I've installed Cloud Ready 2, which is the um, uh, uh, Chrome OS-like operating system that you can install. I mean, if you do a little hacking to make it happen, but they still work just fine. Um, again, there's security risks there, and Chrome is working on a long-term solution that updates the most insecure part of a Chromebook, which is the browser itself. But if you haven't been through that, this uh, Chrome Unbox article, I think, would be interesting and useful, I think, to someone like a tech director. It's kind of amazing how quickly Chrome does update. Uh, I just did a workshop for all of our middle school faculty with these new Chromebooks, and one faculty member uh, hadn't actually taken it out of the box uh, since it was delivered in May. And the number, I think it was like 86 to 92 or something. And maybe that was when it actually shipped. So I don't know how long it, when it was actually put in the box. But what I'll note that's a significant thing in terms of, uh, of teaching and students is now screencasting is built into the Chrome OS. And I don't know. We might still use Screencastify. I'm, we're going to play with that and see. Uh, Screencastify, you know, allows for unlimited, less than five-minute screencasts. This would not have a limit, as far as I know, so that's significant. Um, and then, you know, allowing, a, I think, a quick save to Google Drive. So um, I have not put it through put it through its paces to see if the workflow and everything is as smooth screencastify is great and you just click this one button and it automatically makes it you know unlisted in google drive and all that kind of stuff but uh, anyway when this teacher who wasn't seeing the option it's just when you hold down the quick keys it's like alt control f5 i think the screenshot region comes up and you've just got a toggle between uh camera for for a picture or still image screenshot or video Restart your Chromebook, boom, she's all set, you know, latest version 92. So your Chromebook should be automatically getting their updates, but you do have to restart them in order to, to see those updates. So restart, you know, restart every day or every week. I mean, frequently, is, we're, we're, we just recommend everybody restarts every day. It's fast on a Chromebook. So Yeah, it really is. And um, that built-in functionality is, is, is truly amazing. And I do feel like there is some commitment to that. The, uh, on Google's part. The one thing that's always super interesting to me, and this is also true of, um, you know, updates in, in Windows and, and Mac OS as well, but if you are not as tech savvy as, you know, say the host of the show or you know, the typical teacher that's using tech on a daily basis, one thing that is always interesting to me is, you know, if you get used to a set of functions and how things work, I don't always feel like any of these operating systems do a very good job of kind of holding your hand to teach you about those things. Now, Chrome has a new feature where I think it's it's every other uh, update, they will pop up a box that says what's new with Chrome OS. But if you close that, you miss it, right? And that it looks like a pop-up, right? So I could see maybe doing that out of hand. But yeah, these I, I love this notion that it just happens in the background. It takes no time at all to restart. It's the same amount of restart. And if you're just shutting uh, shutting down and turning back on again, it's one of the great elegances of, of the Chrome operating system. 
Absolutely. And this may be a default, but I remember when we first set up Chromebooks in the Google Admin Console, you know, we would just choose updates and just scatter it, basically. So it, you know, sometimes when Microsoft updates would come, it, I don't know if that, hopefully this has changed as well, but back in the day, you know, your network could really be hit when people powered on on a Monday morning at, you know, 7.45 or 8 o'clock or whatever, and then everybody's pulling down updates and whatnot. So Chrome uh, has some really great, man- you know, tons of great management features. And one of them is it just says, you know, s- scatter and randomize this. So everybody stays updated, but it's not like they all hit the network at the same time, you know, to pull down that update. So I updated my uh, M processor Mac and we have a super fast, you know, gig, gig down at school. And uh, it was like three hours or something. I mean, it was, it, it was uh, multiple, multiple gigabytes. So anyway, it's uh, keep, keep your stuff patched and updated. Although I think we had an article, which we may or may not have talked about that there, there were some issues with Chrome on some Chromebooks recently, but um, I haven't been affected by that. And in general, you just want to keep, you know, maintaining your updates. That's important for security. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, where'd you next, sir? Oh, let's see. Why don't we let's let's jump down to uh, some deep fakes and digital ethics articles. Uh, this is a Huffington Post article from yesterday, from August 10th, and the title is "A Powerful New Deep Fake Tool Has Digitally Undressed Thousands of Women." We have talked about deep fake technology uh, multiple times on the show, and you know this technology enables. Folks who have, a, generally it, it has, a, a lot of, of uh, data um, to basically make someone, um, you know, say and do whatever they want. So thinking of like public figures, uh, politicians, people that, you know, there's lots and lots of video on, um, they, they could make them say whatever they want. And it looks very, very convincing. And the technology, you know, allows for that to um, just, just, you know, trick you basically a lot easier. Now, it still has taken a lot of time as far as video. On the show, I don't know, five or six months ago, there was one that was a, a Tom Cruise um, v- video, and it, and it took hours and hours for the person to do it. But this one is not video. It's still images. But the horrible thing is you can upload uh, a picture, and it only, this only is working for women, uh, even if you upload a picture of a man, it's still going to, you know, change them into a nude female. Um, but they're saying, it, and this article actually doesn't link to the website to try to amplify that. But revenge porn, uh, you know, and and just you know m- the malicious, um, you know, hacking of people's phones and and you know sharing of uh, you know private pictures and things like that. I mean, that's that's been an issue. But in terms of bad actors and folks with with uh, with bad intent, you know, seeking to harm people, um, the host who, of the site and I think the registrar, once they were contacted or whatever, ended up, you know, shutting it down. And then the site was right back up, you know, within uh, a day or two. So another sign of the times of of you know, the dark side of the web and how there are these tremendously powerful and wonderful things that we can do, places we can go, connections we can make. And then there's also, you know, stuff like this. So um, I think that depending upon the age of your students, media literacy education needs to involve discussion about deep fakes. And I'll just go ahead and mention the, the second article. 
take on it. Uh, Kara Swisher has a great podcast. I know Peggy George, who's in our chat room, likes to listen to Kara. It's called Sway. Um, she interviewed Ken Burns, the documentary filmmaker, back on um, August 2nd. And it's a really, really great interview. Um, it's titled as Ken Burns Taking Up Too Much Space. He doesn't think so. Uh, but it is responding to multiple things, including um, this Anthony Bourdain AI voiceover. So there's a documentary filmmaker who was, has created a documentary about Bourdain, uh, who is not alive anymore, and took some words that Bourdain had written, but he didn't actually say them. And so the filmmaker used the deepfake technology to actually make video showing Bourdain saying things that he was never recorded as saying. And probably not surprising, you know, Ken Burns says, no, this, this is not something that I would do. This is not something that's ethical, but really important and, and, and not just interesting, but these, these kinds of things, it's been something we've read about and we have wondered how is that going to impact us. And with this website that, um, this that I, that I mentioned first that's in the Huffington Post article. I mean, yeah, it's uh, it, it's not good. So, your thoughts, Doctor Knifer? Uh, yeah, I uh, I will I will watch that Anthony Bourdain uh, documentary in part because I am a huge Anthony Bourdain mega fan. I love I I, I miss him every day. Um, he's actually impacted a lot of my philosophy about travel and approaching new cultures and new things. Um, and I, that's actually a whole rabbit hole for me, so I won't jump down that one. But I did hear about that and did watch some clips of the um, the uh, uh, AI-generated voice. And you know, having watched, you know, probably hundreds of hours of Anthony Bourdain television, it's pretty pretty close, right? Enough to where it, uh, um, it, it I, I guess maybe it, it, it went down the creepy rabbit hole to me, if if anything else. But um, uh. Yeah, I mean, it, it does add a complexity to media literacy that that is quite extraordinary because I, um, you know, the uh, seeing and hearing is such a powerful uh, uh, trick on the brain, right? That even if you know something is fake or or otherwise not as it purports to be, that can be an extraordinary way to to influence uh, your thoughts and perceptions, and I think that that's a real concern, um, but. Wes, I agree with your notion that we we have to be at least cognizant of this and helping students understand this as well. Um, a lot of people uh, have debated the ethics of, um, you know, perhaps uh, AI generated images of, of actors that are no longer with us. Uh, and, um, you know, there's enough archival footage to create a pretty accurate uh, piece there. And, you know, the, the ethics of that, is that really acting? Uh, if it's for entertainment purposes only, who cares, right? That debate is, is extraordinary as well, but um, it certainly makes things a lot more complex when these things work their way into something that's 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 real news, documentary, uh, that sort of thing. I remember we watched this uh, movie a few years ago called Ghost in the Shell. I think it's rated R, but it was you know, I, I really enjoyed it. And you know the, the ability to um, just with special effects and I'm, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but you know, when an actor or actress and they did this like for Lord of the Rings, like for Gollum, I mean, they had all these different markers and they gathered all of this different data. But once they had had, um, you know, captured all of that, 
then they could basically make Gollum, and I think it's uh, Xerxes, Xerxes, I forget his name, but anyway, the guy who played him. I mean, they could make him say anything and do anything. And so we are entering a world where even in terms of actors and actresses, like filmmakers are going to be able to completely create and fabricate real looking people that can do whatever they want. And then, yes, there's this idea that, hey, you know, that's an interesting copyright thing. And, and who owns the image of an actor, actress, right? If somebody wanted to, and maybe somebody's working on this now, I mean, they could they could make a film with Marilyn Monroe today and they could make it with, you know, real actors and actresses that are interacting with her or complete, fic, you know, fictitious ones. And, you know, if Ken Burns is saying this isn't ethical, I'm not doing it, that's not going to be stopping other people from, you know, pushing the boundaries. Cause this is, this is art as well, but it really is pretty fascinating. And we certainly, I mean, in the political realm, right? I mean, we're not a political show. We're not going to deep dive deep in the in political rabbit holes, but like there have been some audio recordings in recent elections that were we further along in the deep fake world, you know, a politician could have said, well, that's just a deep fake. You know, that's just, that's not real. Um, and so the, the, Again, potential for bad actors, whether they happen to be in your country, they're from other countries who want to probably, you know, subvert and sow discord and chaos in your electoral process. Like this kind of technology has 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 really significant implications. And, um, you know, we need to do what we can to help be aware of it. And I think also I put the digital ethics headline on this one because. You know, when it comes to the uses of technology to coding, um, we've talked about this on the show before. I really think we need a, um, you know, Hippocratic oath for for coders and engineers. Right. Doctors take the Hippocratic oath of do no harm. And, you know, there's a there's a lot of ways that uh, technology you know, has and, and can have unintended consequences and harms. And I'll say one more thing. Peggy, listen to that Ken Burns interview. He is super, super upset with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and just totally thinks that, you know, uh, Facebook has done horrible, horrible things, you know, to our country and to the media landscape. And they, they, they don't have values. And I actually tweeted at him, not like I was expecting to hear from him, but I, if anybody out there has heard Ken Burns talk more about Facebook and about Zuckerberg, I'd, I'd love to, to hear more. Cause that, that kind of ties to the tech correction, which we'll talk about here in a while, but like, you know, do we need more regulation of tech companies and what does that need to look like? And can self-regulation, you know, bring about the kinds of privacy protections uh, that, that we need. Anyway, it was a fascinating podcast. There's a whole lot of issues there. And depending, again, on the developmental level, I don't think I'm going to be broaching this with my fifth and sixth graders. Uh, I'm not. I'm the, the, the first article, we're just we're not talking about that. But teachers need to know about that. And, you know, I have kids last year that were not only on Reddit because they talked about that, they were on image boards too. And there's a lot of really troublesome and dark and, uh, and, and pretty bad stuff that is out there. And so it's one of those things where as teachers, we need to, and parents, you know, we, we need to, to have some awareness of, of what's out there and also what kinds of warning signs there are. And, um, you know, at some point be able to enter into some conversations about that because they're, if you think about that tool, that that's just what a devastating tool to be able to take any digital image from a yearbook or any 
you know, any picture that that a person has taken. Um, and again, to not have to have lots of equipment and power and, and time and hours and hours, but just to be able to upload it and boom, there, there it is. So it's, uh, that, that is something I think we're going to probably hear more about in this school year. I'll just yep. predict that. Absolutely. I think that that is 100% true. All right. Where would you like to go next, sir? Well, let's do, um, a lot of these are real rabbit holes that, that I put in here tonight. Jump in oh, them. Let's go, baby. Okay. Let's, <laughs> uh, uh, the water's warm. Come on in. Uh, let's do some tech correction articles. Um, I think both of you and I, th- uh, or both of us threw up an article related to this, but the headline here is that Facebook has shut down political researchers that have been utilizing the API and other hooks into Facebook to analyze Facebook, right? And in particular, um, there was political ad researchers that uh, were, were kicked off the platform. And there's a couple interesting things about this. The first one is that they are claiming, Facebook is claiming that it violated their terms of service. And uh, the researchers and, and also a number of, of, of third-party accounts I've seen have suggested that that just simply wasn't the case, that they were using publicly available resources and they were careful. And in fact, a lot of ways, most research um, and most IRBs, if they're located on a university campus, probably wouldn't allow them to violate the terms of service um, of a platform in order to gather data for the purposes of, 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 of academic research. But ignoring that for a moment, um, the other thing that's also true is the Federal Trade Commission commented on this and basically said it was a bad idea that that doing this was 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 troublesome and for Facebook to to do that. Right. Yeah. 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 That's the article for Mashable on on August eighth and. The thing I would note is that um, uh, the way, well, the way Mashable is 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 framing this, and I've seen references to this across the news media, is that basically it's a thumb um, uh, 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 in the nose. That's the phrase, right? A thumb in the nose of uh, of of uh, regulators. It's basically daring um, uh, government regulators to step in and and, and regulate them. Um, I, I guess I just would have to say that it's the, the headline for me is that it's a terrible idea for Facebook to draw this line because I, I mean, that even if they don't like what the, the, the research is saying, the fact that they're becoming more of a black box, I, I think is, is a terrible idea. Um, and then the other way that another headline puts it, uh, and this is one of the researchers they shut down, um, spoke to Recode and said, people do not trust that Facebook is a healthy ecosystem. And if you want to, you know, spur more distrust, a good way to do that is to kick out academic researchers that are trying to figure out what impact the platform has broadly on society. So I guess I'd start off with, Wes, uh, any, any thoughts regarding Facebook taking what I think is a, is a pretty aggressive action? Yeah, terrible, terrible action. Uh, like you said, it's kind of a of a dare, throwing down a glove to regulators. Um, the tool which the NYU researchers were utilizing here, well, if they were, it, it's the Facebook advertising library. I think maybe they were having people also capture things and send them in. But this summer, in the Summer Institute on in Digital Literacy, uh, I went to a, a session on propaganda that Renee Hobbs, who's at the University of Rhode Island, did. And we used this Facebook uh, advertising library. It's incredible. Um, you know, it's probably been at least, it's more than five years that since I ran my first ads on Facebook, uh, 
and I, and I only did a couple of those and I haven't really done any more since then. I'm like, haven't been very entrepreneurial for like six years. Um, but it's incredible how you can target and the ways in which that yes. tool is built. And when you are creating the ad, even if you don't buy it, you know, you, it's very eye opening or it was that's five or six years ago. Similarly. And I had, I think I had to log into Facebook. Some people said they didn't think you had to log in, but like I can say, show me political ads in Montana, you know, between, you know, August and November of 2016. And then I can compare those to the ads that are running in Connecticut or running in Oklahoma. And um, basically I think every advertisement that has run on the platform is in this database. So it's an incredible tool I haven't actually seen that activity I did this summer it was the first time I had played with that. And I, I haven't seen, you know, or talked to K-12 teachers using that with students. Again, I think because I'm a middle school media literacy teacher right now, like that's not something I'm going to be doing. But if I was teaching high school, if I'm teaching college, really a powerful tool. So kudos to Facebook for putting it out there. Shame on Facebook for shutting down researchers that were doing some really important research and pointing to things that, you know, fa Facebook shouldn't have veto power, you know, to silence them. It reminds me of Google who's fired their own re you know, researchers on AI. Right. Allegedly because they were upset at some of the conclusion. I think these had to do with, you know, algorithms being racist and, and anyway, conclusions that they Google didn't like, but it is a pretty big deal. And hopefully we're going to see action. The sad thing is we have such gridlock in the United States that, you know, powerful lobbyists generally get to do what they want. And so I'm not going to be super optimistic that we're going to see, you know, change on this quickly, but at least the FCC came out and certainly the Biden administration has a much, I think, well, I don't know. We've, this is this area where we have both conservative and liberal voices calling for regulation and, you know, calling for change. It's different kinds of change and for different purposes, Yes, but um, hopefully we'll see some teeth, you know, to the FCC and FTC and these different federal organizations that are charged with, with regulating and overseeing uh, things like this. And, you know, Facebook can have some meaningful consequences for it because that's, I don't know that I've ever heard of a company doing that kind of thing for academic research. And, and anyway, it's, but it is a different world, right? Because they have a tool that the researchers are using. So they have the ability to shut off their accounts. I mean, in a typical research study, that's not the kind of thing that your, your subject of your research can do is just, you know, I don't know, maybe so, but it's, there, there's, there's, uh, you know, nuances and, and, and relationships and situations here that, that are certainly unique to studying social media and studying a company like Facebook. So we need more academic research like this because the transparency that it can afford and the window that it can provide us into stuff that's been happening for years, but it's been in the dark. I think that these researchers are doing really important work and we need more of it. Yep. Absolutely true. And then one other uh, uh, article that is from the verge it, it, that uh, it, it's interesting because the onus of this was a, was a PR person apparently contacting a uh, spokesperson, contacting the verge and talking about this, but um, uh 
the Verge reported that Facebook is rebuilding its ads to know a lot less about you. And the term the the spokesperson talked about was a very meaningful pivot, uh, in part to do with Apple, right? Like Apple uh, essentially shut down a lot of the ability to track in its apps and gave users choice whether they wanted to be tracked in that way. And the vast majority of users have chosen uh, to turn off tracking, uh, I, I think the number we decided uh, several weeks ago was 95% of Apple uh, iOS and, and uh, uh, iPad OS users were, were headed in that direction. I mean, I, I still, uh, you know, Wes talks about uh, talked about it earlier. I've had some experience too. You know, I will say, having advertised on Facebook before, there is something really extraordinary about, and I think the term they use here in the article is micro targeting. And, you know, part of the power of that is, um, you know, not necessarily as much. I've never had the, the opportunity to, to track someone by a, a fine or a, a very specific location. Right. Targeting by city or proclaim the home city, yada, 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 I think is is, is kind of uh, an important piece of that. But um, I still you know, the, the free web is run by advertising, right? That That's the bottom line. Uh, we don't have a lot of alternatives to that, um, short of charging um, more for these individual services. There are some small-scale uh, uh, ways that people try to monetize uh, uh, their web presence uh, that probably aren't scalable to, you know, the entire Internet. But if Facebook can do it, more power to them. I just am a little skeptical that they can continue to have the revenues they've had in the past without that, um, you know, micro-targeting. And remember, we had, we we talked about this article several months back when Apple turned on its ability for you to turn off the various tracking. Um, one of the ways Facebook uh, talked about that was its benefit to small businesses. And I have to say that, that that argument doesn't encourage me to turn tracking back on on the app, but... I thought it was a pretty good argument, right? Because that's something that a local small business can do. Very highly targeted advertising towards likely customers, as opposed to, you know, kind of shooting in the dark with more traditional means. We have a great little exchange here in the in the back channel with Chelsea and, and Peggy. Um, Chelsea notes that uh, sort of a personal tech correction, uh, decreasing the use of Facebook and the scope of it and, you know, just kind of limiting, you know, and I have too. I've definitely, I mean, shaping that feed is really important and taking uh, ownership. Somebody told me just this week how they sat down, I think, with one of their parents and they just couldn't believe the feed. Like everything was emotional. Everything was angry. And like, that's the normal for this person's, I think, mother. Um, so Peggy's really, you know, cut down on, on her Facebook use as well. And we were talking about, you know, uh, ownership of content and like, just like with those researchers having their data, you know, having their stuff cut off, like, oh my gosh, I just, you know, if they, if they cut off your account, you can lose all your stuff. So you can download all of your Facebook data. Um, I put that link in. You can just Google, you know, download Facebook data. I honestly haven't done that. And I've wished oh, yeah. like, so I, I share, you know, now not just cooking things, but we have a new golden retriever puppy who's very cute and it's wonderful to share her and people like love, you know, love seeing the dogs. But I've, I've wished there was a way for me to just cross post that to my own blog where I'd be able to, to have that and own that. And anyway, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to have my Facebook account deleted and I don't think I'm losing that. And I don't think Facebook is closing soon. Uh, but Peggy's downloaded uh, her data. It's a good thing probably for us to do. Uh, who knows? Maybe that's something you do like on a annual audit, you know, audit your passwords and make sure you get everything, you know, updated and secure and download your data. Um, I did that with Twitter 
recently and it was, it was a huge amount of data. It was like several gigabytes because I've shared a bunch of, of pictures and videos and things like that over the years. But yeah, yeah, lots of issues there. And we've said this before, we're kind of living in the tech utopia and dystopia at the same time. And maybe there's no better place to see that than Facebook because it's a wonderful way to stay connected and um, be able to have transformative, you know, interactions with people and ideas being shared. But, you know, it may be it may be posing an existential threat to our representative democracy and, uh, you know, human rights and other things around the world who, you know, we don't know. Um, and I don't know, I don't know when we're going to know, you know, what, what has to happen, you know, how bad does it have to be before, you know, we, we make a change. So, all right. Uh, let's see. You want to do, let's see that verge art. Did you already do that verge one? The the rebuilding its ads? Yes. Okay. All right. Um, how about the digital movies? You want to, you want to go there? Sure. Yeah. This is just a quick one that, uh, that I, I had known this personally, but it was, this was a well-written article by, uh, one of my favorite uh, sources for kind of consumer information, the wire cutter, which is now a New York times property. But, um, uh, the article goes into some detail about something that, that's, that's, that's really interesting that you may not know that if you're buying digital assets and this can include movies or books or seasons of television shows. So, so, you know, and it, it, it doesn't really matter what platform it is, but probably the easiest way to think about this is when you're buying it on, on, on the Apple TV platform, right, that you, you purchase a movie, you don't really own it, right? Like you bought it, but you're actually, it's, it's closer in, 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 in uh, analogy to a rental than it is an ownership because there are several circumstances in which you can just have your access taken away, not the least of which is the company can go away, right? Uh, less of an issue with something like an Apple uh, 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 or a, a mainstream uh, a platform. But the bottom line is that you don't really own that. And there was an issue several years ago um, about uh, uh, Amazon Kindle books. Those are digital properties. You don't own those, even though you kind of own them. But updates can be pushed out. The book can be uh, uh, rendered unavailable anymore um, and, and access pulled away. Uh, updates could push out that you don't like that, that are, 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 are make the book for the worse than the better. And the same is true of, of video. And so just be very cognizant of the fact that, you know, you may own a large digital library, but the bottom line is, is that ownership isn't quite like owning something in the physical realm. I have to mention that said, like I know a, a handful of people that refuse to buy anything digitally and they're still very much purchasing physical media. Um, that is, you know, getting to a point where it's difficult to, to, to even pull that off, right? Because, uh, you know, if you own a large VHS library, you're literally buying used VHS players to continue to, to play that media. Um, so at some point that, you know, uh, stands to maybe be a losing strategy. But the bottom line is, is that it's important to understand ownership. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, Chelsea's pointing out in the, in the chat that, you know, um, what happens to this content when people pass away, when they die, uh, it is super important for us to have our passwords, hopefully to our password managers, like one password does this nice emergency kit. And I was just helping an elderly couple 
two weeks ago, kind of get set up there. And my recommendation was put this in your bank fire file or wherever you keep wills and, you know, powers of attorney and these kinds of things. Uh, the, these are the keys to the kingdom as you are using a password manager. And um, the, the whole idea that, you know, not a lot, not, not enough people are using a password manager today, but you know, the, the code on your iPhone lock screen, the code to the Apple ID, like if you don't have that and, or, and you can't, you know, access, if you can't access that, I mean, you're going to lose, lose that content. And, um, you know, the companies really don't have an incentive to make that different. And there really aren't easy legal ways to, you know, be able to get your own offline copy of, let's say movies that you buy on, on iTunes, um, you know, to be able to, 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 to have them in the same way that you can have a DVD library or a CD, you know, collection or something like that, of physical um, assets that are there. So it's, it, it, isn't it interesting how our minds get used to like the, the new ways? Cause it wasn't that many years ago that subscribing for music just didn't sound good to me. Like I like my music that I've ripped and it's, you know, built this library and iTunes match and all that. And now I'm just like all in with Spotify. It's just awesome. I love it. I discover new music, you know, fairly often as a result of the service. Anyway, so that that's changed. But, you know, your point is right, Jason. Not everybody's on that bandwagon. Uh, it's kind of harder to live in that analog world. But, hey, you know, we still have a lot of antiques running around. You know, you can still get an 8-track <laughs> player, maybe. Um, so there's, there's people that still love vinyl. Um, but uh, it's... We need, we do need to be aware, especially with the personal stuff, not like the Hollywood movies, but like your own family movies, your own pictures, you know, having that backed up, having that on a media device, like a USB flash drive, or maybe a, a burnable DVD, right? How long are those going to be available? Probably for a while, but anyway, having that stuff so that, you know, posterity will not lose your digital legacy. So. Absolutely. Well, we're approaching the top of the hour here. Let me do a quick Microsoft article that I that the article itself is not nearly as interesting, I think, as a broader point. But uh, Microsoft and its um, Edge browser is the same way that that there are experiments in Chrome, which is the core. Uh, Chromium is the core of the Edge browser. There's experiments also in Edge. They're working on something called Super Duper Secure Mode which actually uh, uh, takes away a lot of functionality in a browser um, that is suspect uh, or otherwise maybe not, uh, you know, it could introduce security issues into that. And the, the point I want to make here is not, um, is not that secure piece, although it is interesting. I'm glad to hear Microsoft's doing that. It's that I think in the end, it's probably great for users that Microsoft has moved towards the Chromium base. And one of the reasons why is because it is, you know, Chrome is different than, than, than Edge, right? If you download Chrome, you download Edge, they feel similar because they're built on the same base. But the bottom line is, is that Chrome is different. It's got a different look to it. It calls things different things. Um, it, it's, it's a different phenomenon altogether. But I do think having two large sets of users, the Chrome users and the Edge users that are using a browser and then these two different companies are building things on top of it, I think that makes the web a better experience for everyone because we're feeding all these changes back into the Chromium base. 
So I, I'm, I'm interested in this and I, I like the, the edge browser. I, I like the old edge browser, but I could never really could find a way to, to integrate it into my workflow. Um, that's not true of the new web br- or edge browser because it, it utilizes a lot of the same plugins. Um, it, you can use all the Chrome pro- plugins on the edge browser. Super duper security mode. Yeah. I mean, I just I had to Google that, like, you know, it could almost be an Onion article, you know, Microsoft bringing in the super duper security. So, yeah, I guess they're figuring that that's going to resonate with consumers and you'll know that's it's really good. I'm not an edge user. I remember I tried it, you know, after you had mentioned on the show a while back uh, how much you liked it. I mean, I still have Firefox on my on my computer, um, but you know, I'm pretty much all in on the Google, the Google ecosystem. Yeah. So it's, you know, that again, is a, we're living in the day of surveillance capitalism. And so many of us have drank the Kool-Aid and there's a lot of benefits to, you know, the free things that we do get from Google and, and from their, from their tools. But I'm glad to see Microsoft pushing that forward. And, you know, we all need to be attuned to security and, and finding ways to, make sure that we are engaging in secure practices, both, you know, independently on our own at home and at work. So. Yep. Absolutely. Um, how about an article um, on connectivity? So <clears throat> I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, I've shared it uh, on social media, AT&T's pulled fiber down our street, you know, and, and put it in both sides of the, of the, um, of the, of the street. And this article says that because of supply chain disruptions, uh, the headline from Ars Technica on August 11th, AT&T delays 500,000 fiber to the home builds due to severe fiber shortage. Um, they were planning to wire 3 million homes this year and they're going to hit two and a half million. So I think the fiber is in the ground at our house. So I'm hopeful that in another month or so, I don't know how long it'll take them to light it up. Uh, we'll be able to, um, you know, give that a try. Uh, we're, we're paying, I think way too much, uh, for Cox. And we just, we haven't had another viable option, you know, AT&T's DSL is available, but it's very slow compared to the cable modem. So glad to see this, but you know, supply chain disruptions are real. Uh, our CFO just talked to us today and just had some different data and graphs. Like if you look at the graph of lumber in the United States and where that price of like two by fours or whatever, I mean, that's a wild graph and it's gone down, you know, significantly, but there's a lot of supply chain disruptions and um, we're probably going to continue to have them. And so um, are you on AT&T fiber or, or you, you guys don't have that. No, we're on, uh, we're on cable internet. Okay. And you have 400 down, uh, 400 down, uh, 30 up. So it's, it's pretty good for cable internet. We'll see. And we're at, we're paying for a gig down, but we're only 30 up and you can't do any more than 30 up. AT&T's fiber here is a symmetric gig. So you can get a gig up and down. And so anyway, not that, we're reaching a crisis here and, and our, our son's not living with us anymore. And, you know, 30 gigs is actually pretty reasonable. I mean, when we had five of us engaging in remote learning, you know, that, that, that can be taxing on the internet pipe, but anyway, it's, it's good to see uh, consumer choices and, you know, I'm glad to see AT&T doing that. Um, let's see. I think I had maybe one more uh, under security, um, maybe you want to do that um, Senate bill, the Ars Technic article from today, 
Hackers siphon $600 million in digital tokens, Crypto Network says. Um, Jason, I know that you are a sometimes uh, investor in the cryptocurrency <laughs> market. So hopefully this isn't hitting too close to home with your, you know, cryptocurrency marketplace of choice. But uh, this was the Poly Network, it says, which links some of the world's most widely used digital ledgers. Uh, attackers had exploited a vulnerability in the system and taken thousands of crypto tokens. So uh, I have not dabbled in cryptocurrency. I was listening to Today Explained or some, uh, you know, podcast recently that it just it was a, it was an interview with a professor like the way in which bitcoin operates and the value that it has and the, the faith because right that's what money really is is you we put yeah. faith in the u.s dollar or bitcoin or whatever you know it's just uh it's extraordinary and it wouldn't have been something necessarily that economists would have would have predicted so jason did your personal crypto uh <laughs> investments just get wiped out by this latest hack uh, no, it didn't, in part because I'm kind of a chicken, and so I buy mine through um, uh, Robinhood, which is the the uh, uh, investment site, so it's, it's in fact, I probably should know more about where that's at, and, and to be clear, um, really Dogecoin is the only thing I have any, any real investment. I've done very well in Dogecoin, uh, not, you know, I'm not quitting my day job well uh, on Dogecoin, but who knows what the future holds for, for the Dogecoin, but um, I... Cryptocurrency is uh, uh, it, it, it lacks adoption in part because there's just all these moving parts that you have to kind of jump into to be able to buy, save, and then use cryptocurrency. And it's 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 the mega wild west out there. So um, I I am encouraged that uh, yeah, there's cognizance about this, but it's still. You know, it's it's uh, in some cases you're 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 safer just putting your money into a precious metal and burying it in your backyard. So it's a wild west. Uh, let's see. You know what? That is May. Well, I don't know. I guess the Apple ones we may not have got to. Do you want to do the Apple ones or you want to do that security article about the Senate bill? Yeah, let me do the security article. I think let's do the Apple one next week because I think that's a bit of a rabbit hole and we're, we're near the top of the hour here. But, um, this is really a follow up of something we've talked about a half dozen times here on the show. But, uh, after a lot of state efforts failed, there is a new, uh, Senate bill that, uh, takes aim at U.S. app stores, particularly calling out Google and Apple's app stores as being kind of monopolist in nature and, um, what I would say is that um, the, the same, same thing applies. Well, first of all, a bill means nothing, right? There are literally uh, tens of thousands of bills uh, introduced uh, uh, each year across the United States in, in various levels of government that will go absolutely nowhere. Um, but that said, that um, uh, this notion of um, you know, they want to introduce some, uh, what, what I think some people would call competitive practices into the app store world. Uh, I understand why it's, uh, it, it, it seems like it's desirable, but, um, you know, I happen to be with Apple on this one that I think that the single unified app store on the, the, uh, the iOS platform, uh, its biggest advantage is security, which is why I called this a security article. But be curious to keep an eye on this. I know that, that Senator Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota is very interested in this topic and, in fact, can actually hold a conversation about it. Not every senator can uh, meaningfully hold a conversation about this. Uh, senator Klobuchar, that, that's not the case with her. I think she knows a lot about this, but I'll be curious to see where this goes. 
Definitely. We're having some uh, discussion in the back channel about just connectivity, and I would just mention Starlink. Um, that is a, you know, increasing, increasingly viable option for folks in different areas. And I don't think you can necessarily get it everywhere, and I think it's still in beta, but that's Elon Musk's you know, network. And I think there's some other competitors to Starlink that are working. I mean, I don't know if we're going to be able to see stars before long. We're just going to have so many you know, satellites. And on that note, the Perseid meteor shower was supposed to start last night. I saw nothing uh, getting up, you know, in the middle of the night with our dog. But anyway, space, Internet, connectivity, choices. Yes, we need to have more choices. And uh, whenever there's only one choice in town, usually the price that you pay for it is a little bit more than you might otherwise. So hopefully the infrastructure bill, which I don't. I don't think it's passed the House yet, but it passed the Senate, which is kind of a miracle, uh, includes some substantial funding for connectivity. So maybe that will trickle down and affect us in the communities where we live. So, all right, sir, do you uh, want a geek of the weekend? I do. Um, I just want to share this particular site. I, I have to say I've been a longtime Audible user. Uh, this is not a sponsorship. Uh, we are we are an unsponsored podcast. Contact us for details. Uh, but the I've been a longtime Audible user. I, I love it. it. It's been a really important part of my my audiobook diet. And um, you know I would never go. I would never travel long distance in a car without it. But if you don't want to pay the monthly membership fee or if if you find that you don't want to waste an Audible credit if you're an Audible user, there's a really great alternative called Chirp Audiobooks. It's its, its own app that you download, and um, they have uh, a comparatively much lower rates if you're buying you know, kind of off the shelf for audiobooks in comparison to Audible. One thing I have noticed is it's not always the uh, version that uh, was was released widely, so it may not be, you know, one of the premier voice actors. I can tell you I love listening to a John Grisham novel when I travel long distance in a car, in part because the, the four or five voice actors that do them are, I mean, they're really great performances of, of that. It's also great car literature to listen to, but I've purchased five or six books on here now at a deeply discounted rate in comparison to their Audible pricing, and it's all been, it's it's been pretty solid. It's a good app. It's a good website. And I would recommend it, especially if you're not buying into Audible books on a regular basis. I've uh, at times had an Audible subscription this summer. Uh, we wanted to listen to the, um, oh, it's the, the story about the, um, oh, the uh, Indian tribe uh, north of us and the flower moon. Um, anyway, they're just shooting. Uh, they've just shot a, um, a movie, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is the name of the, of the book. And, uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, has just shot a, a movie with some pretty big headliners. Anyway, uh, I got two free, free books and anyway, was back, back into that. But it was, a, it was that exact kind of thing where it's like, I didn't really want to subscribe. I just really wanted that book. And so I'm glad to know about that. Um, I've got two fast ones. Um, Derek Mueller is Veraticium. If you don't follow him, like all of his videos have just millions and millions of views. I watched this one this week. Uh, the title is This is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Fascinating and gets to the heart of right to repair, which is something that we talked about either last week or the week before. It starts off with light bulbs and why light bulbs go out. Now with LEDs, you know, they're going to probably last, you know, 15 years or something like that. But 
it's just a fascinating video and it touches on technology and back to Apple and this whole idea about batteries and replacement and how, you know, companies want to generate revenue. So they'll sometimes, uh, what's it called? Uh, designed obsolescence or something like that, where they're, they're actually going to make something not work at a certain time so that you're going to be able to, or you're going to want to buy a new one. So it was just really great. I'm probably going to use that video as a media literacy video with my students. Um, also just talking about marketing and the ways that, you know, cars and fashion and things like that, you know, try to, to generate um, the, uh, the demand. And then the last one I just learned about today, I did a little workshop with our, uh, our technology manager. It's called Easy Res. And this is a free app on the Apple App Store for Mac computers. And it just allows you to really quickly change the resolution on your primary or secondary or tertiary, however many screens that you have. Um, a little bit faster than opening up the display control panel. So something cool to check out. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Dr. Fryer, where can we find you on the internet? You can just go, just go to westfryer.com and click connect and you'll be able to see all of my various and sundry social media channels. My <coughs> Twitter, W Fryer is the main place where I share on a daily basis. How about you, Dr. I'm best found on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, where I share I 10, 15 articles a week, and I try to get into civil conversations um, on, on Twitter. And now that I mention that, next week, I'd love uh, Dr. Fryer to talk to you about that Teachers Pay Teachers article on the air, because I thought that was an interesting study that was released this week. Awesome. All right. Oh, wait, and I'm the host, so I need to, I need to, to, to access out. That's uh, okay. This is, not, this is not just about me and Wes. This is the EdTech Situation Room. We are a once-a-week podcast on Wednesday nights. We typically broadcast at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time, and sometime in the middle of the night UTC. We do broadcast over uh, YouTube Live and also Facebook Live. Uh, you can go to our, our, our Twitter handle, uh, EdTechSR, or our Facebook page to find out when we're broadcasting. If you want to join us live, uh, we, we often have a, a, a conversation going on in the back uh, background with our moderator, Peggy George. But if you don't want to do that, you can most certainly download the podcast. You can do that at our website and wherever finer podcasts are aggregated. But uh, we hope you join us live next time in the Situation Room. Uh, we hope you have a great week. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope to see you next time on NTECH SR. Good night. Thanks, everybody.